Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Knowledge with Homage. I'm your host, David Castle, a.k.a. Homage the Lion Killer. Uh, today is kind of uh, an emergency broadcast here. I'm still going to be doing my normal Wednesday show. But I came across this interview yesterday, and uh, it's an incredible interview. It's, it has a lot of very important information, so I just wanted to use my platform to share it with you guys and bring it to your attention. It is an interview from the thelastamericanvagabond.com, uh, the journalist Taylor Hudak. I believe I might be pronouncing that wrong. It's Ryan Christian's website. I've had Ryan on the show before, thelastamericanvagabond.com. And uh, yeah, Taylor Hudak is interviewing a man named Michael Yeadon, who is the former Pfizer uh, vice president and chief scientist for allergy and respiratory. Uh, Pfizer, of course, being the, the pharmaceutical company that is responsible for creating one of the COVID vaccines that uses the mRNA technology. So uh, this guy is a very credible person. He has an expert opinion. And in this interview, they talk about COVID-19, the mRNA vaccine, as well as uh, suppression and the outright censorship of medical and scientific experts. Uh, this is very, very important information. And that's why I wanted to put it on uh, my podcast thing and, and just kind of, I just downloaded it from from uh, thelastamericanvagabond.com. And I want to share it with you guys, especially if somebody out there is considering taking the vaccine um, because there's so much propaganda. This is a huge sales campaign that is being directed towards the American people. And the real goal of it is to create this vaccine passport system where you can't do anything um, unless you take whatever the government tells you to take. And you, you have to inject this thing into your body. And it's just a very slippery slope where in the future, if they did want to do a mass culling of the population and fucking kill everybody because they say, you know, whatever, climate change, whatever they want to say, um, they'll have the ability to do that. Not saying that this is what the vaccine is doing right now. And this isn't what uh, Michael Yeadon says in the interview. Um, but he goes in to explain... What the hell is going on? He, he has a credible expert opinion. So listen to it for yourself and uh, you decide. All right. Peace out. The COVID-19 mRNA vaccine. This new technology is being advertised in just about every place you go. But is this new vaccine safe? And will it one day become mandatory? I'm independent journalist Taylor Hudak, and to seek answers to these questions, today I turn to former vice president of Pfizer, Dr. Michael Eden. If you or someone you love is on the fence about receiving the COVID-19 vaccine or wants to learn more information, watch this video and send it to your loved ones because this is a perspective that you will not find anywhere else. Dr. Michael Yeadon, first, I want to thank you for joining me today and taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. I'm glad to uh, inform you and your and your audience about my, my thoughts on this matter. So before we do get started, why don't we begin with your qualifications and your background in the medical field? So I'm a, I'm a PhD research scientist. Um, 40 years this year since I started my training, biochemistry and toxicology, followed by research-based PhD in respiratory pharmacology. So I've covered a wide range of life science disciplines necessary to identify potential targets uh, for new drugs to treat respiratory, allergic, and immunological diseases. And then I spent 32 years uh, in pharmaceutical R&D, mostly in big companies. Uh, I left Pfizer 10 years ago as head of research worldwide for respiratory. In the last 10 years, I've been an independent entrepreneur advising several dozen startup companies, and I had the privilege of founding and successfully running for five years my own biotech, which was sold to Novartis four years ago. So that's me. And you also held a position as vice president of Pfizer. I was vice president and chief scientist of allergy and respiratory research. 
Okay. So I just want to start basic as well. For the past year, we of course have heard a lot about COVID-19 in the mainstream press. It has dominated the mainstream press. And one would believe due to this coverage that this virus is unlike any other virus that we have been exposed to before, that it is very deadly and that the medical field is really unsure how to treat it. Do you agree with that assessment? And can you explain what really is COVID-19? No, I don't, I don't agree with that assessment. I would say that it's actually a really rather middling kind of virus. Uh, yes, it certainly uh, has a heightened risk. If you're elderly and already ill, there's a heightened risk that it will kill you, seriously. Uh, and it is probably more lethal than influenza, say, uh, to adults over 70. But the corollary is it's less lethal to adults under 70 than is influenza. Seriously, the, it's the, the sharpest risk factor you can look for is, is age, and the steepness of that risk rises strongly with COVID with age, and less so with influenza. And as a result, it's a really scary virus if you're old and ill, uh, but it's less lethal to people under 70 than is influenza. So you ask, you know, is the... Uh, I guess you implied, is, is the policy response appropriate? No, it's not. I mean, basically all of the working population is at less risk than to influenza. There's no argument about it. So why they've done what they have done, um, your guess is at least as good as mine. We've heard a lot about the new variants within the past six months or so, and I know that you have been doing some research on this, and you just wrote a piece re- recently with Mark Giradeau. And in this piece about the new variants, it states, quote, To date, no robust scientific evidence proves that any variants identified are more transmissible or deadly. By definition, variants are clinically identical, end quote. Can you explain the COVID-19 variants and if we should be concerned about them? And why is the media and the public health industry really causing alarm for this when there perhaps may not need to be so much concern? So let, let's take the first part first, and then we can come back to the why question. Um, the first part. So say it's a middling kind of virus. Uh, you know, it's, it's worse than the common cold. However, it is uh, of the same class of viruses as other coronaviruses, uh, HKU1 and so on. There are four endemic common cold-causing coronaviruses. And all that's happened is that SARS-CoV-2 is, as it were, it's a more lethal version of that, but it's not unfamiliar. It's of a viruses that's been amongst us for thousands of years. Um, so variants. This is a very large virus. It's uh, made people may understand that it's made of protein. Proteins consist of amino acids. They are the building blocks of protein. And this virus consists of about ten thousand of those building blocks. If you look for the variant that's most different from the original sequence from Wuhan in late December, January, a year and a half ago, a year and a third ago, you find the thing that's most different from that. I was stunned to find that it's only 0.3% different. It's a slug of a virus in terms of changing its form. So in 16 months, it's moved 0.3% in its sequence. The corollary is true. That means all the variants are 99.7% identical. So if you imagine holding up one virus and another, 99.7, your your visual system would maybe struggle to spot the differences. And uh, if there were small differences, you would very much recognize them as uh, as a pair. And you would see that they were so closely related that you might even think one glass they are the same. The same is true of your immune system. Normally, your immune system, when it spots a pathogen, a new foreign organism, it cuts that organism up into a couple of dozen pieces, maybe hundreds sometimes, and goes through a molecular identity parade, offering each of those pieces in turn to your immune system until some cells in your immune system say, hey, I recognize that little piece, and they're advised to go off and multiply the cells that recognize that piece. And it goes so on, so on, so on, until you've taken a molecular identity parade uh, of all of the pieces that the virus can be cut up into. So now if a variant comes along that is 0.3% different, 99.7% the same, and your body cuts it up into little pieces, as you would expect, most of those little pieces are identical to the little pieces that you cut up from the earlier virus. In other words, these small changes in the variants are hopelessly 
splitting to fool your body into thinking it's a new pathogen. And it's a really important point. When people talk about immune escape, they mean your body is fooled and thinks it's a new pathogen. It's simply not possible. And let's let me quickly, quickly give you a, another yardstick so you can judge whether you believe what I'm saying. You may remember in 2003, there was an earlier SARS virus that didn't spread so widely around the world, but it was alarming. Uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the latest version, is 20% different from the SARS-2003, 20%. That's about 80 times more distance than any of the variants are from the current virus. But there were some enterprising immunologists, and they managed to find some people who'd been infected with SARS in 2003 and asked them if they would be willing to donate some blood, and they did. And they extracted their uh, T memory cells and asked two, two important questions. Did they still remember SARS 17 years later? They did. All the people who had been infected 17 years ago, their cells lit up when they saw the same virus. The second question was, if you give them today's virus, SARS-CoV-2, did they, res did they respond or not respond? They all responded. And it shouldn't be that much of a surprise because 80% of the new virus and the old one are identical. And so with that story, 20% difference is completely inadequate to fool your body that it's a new virus. So why in the world would you possibly believe people telling you that 0.3% is enough to cause a problem? The answer is it's not. Uh, to your question about why it's why that's been why we've been told otherwise, uh, my straight answer is it's not my crime. So I don't know why they're doing it, but they are lying to us. They're directly telling untruthful statements that I, I know as an experienced immunologist, reading the literature, looking at the theory and the practice, it's, it is a lie. And I worry about that. Now, people hearing this right now are probably feeling quite alarmed, but not surprised. A lot of people feel lied to right now, but it still is very scary. Can you think of possibly why we are being so deceived? Yes, I, 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 had, I worked out quite early on that we were not being told the truth, probably uh, late April last year, uh, after once the first lockdown was maybe three or four weeks old, and uh, I had seen that the peak of deaths, peak of excess deaths had passed in the UK, and I was relieved. And I could see the number of daily deaths was falling. And instead of then the government saying, the worst of the wave has passed, you know, go back to your normal lives. They said, we're going to lock you down again and again and again until it was like midsummer. And at that, at that point, uh, during that period, I worked out something very malign is going on. So um, as to what that was, um, I kind of self-centered for several months because I also didn't have an answer. But I've come to the scary conclusion that really what this is about is getting the world's population onto a the world's first, uh, you know, um, um, what do you call it? Data, what, the world's first uh, database with common uh, format where all of us will have a unique ID, a unique ID, and there'll be at least one field that's editable, which will contain uh, either a thumb up that your vaccine passport is valid or a thumb down that say it's not. Now, there could be as many fields as you like added to that. I'm, I'm not a technologist, so I couldn't tell you what else could be done. But if, if this vaccine passport scheme comes into being, you know, if, I, if I'm vaccinated, I'll have an app, presumably with a QR code that says who I am, where I am, and that I'm entitled per the algorithm that's enforced that day to cross a particular threshold or conduct a particular transaction. If on the other hand, my vaccine passport is invalid, I will be prevented from crossing a threshold or performing a transaction. I call that totalitarian control. There would literally be nothing that I might want to do that wouldn't be in the gift of whoever controls that database and the algorithm. And what they will do, I believe, is that I think is the objective of this global fraud, is to push everybody onto this first ever uh, interactive, common format, um, algorithm-driven, you know, editable uh, uh, vaccine passport scheme and, and I think if that happens, that's the end of liberal democracy. I cannot see a way in which you would be able to step off that platform because the algorithm simply needs to say you need a valid 
passport in order to say buy gasoline, uh, shop, uh, even use your bank card uh, across an international border. Absolutely anything could, if they want to, require a valid passport. And here's just the thing just to frighten the hell out of your listeners, because you might think that's not too bad. Maybe, you know, our leaders will be more benign. But if if they send you a reminder and says, um, you need to come for a top-up vaccine, um, and I, I will talk about top-up vaccines later, but say it also says, would you mind bringing in your 13-year-old son and your 12-year-old daughter? Uh, and you might think, well, I don't want them vaccinated. And they'll, the bottom of the app will say, if you do not comply with this request, your vaccine passport will expire in 20 days. So if you if you want to allow the system to come into, play, into force, there is nothing you can, can be asked to do that you are empowered to refuse because the system will simply exclude you from your life. Um, so, yeah, that's about why I'm... So that's why I think they've been lying to us, and it took me 10 or 11 months to arrive at that view, but it's not my crime and there might be other reasons. What I can tell you is that nothing we've been told is kind of genuine and honest. I'm going to ask you to speculate once again. Do you believe that this has been pre-planned for some time now? Let let me just say a couple of things. I'm kind of middle-class guy who's adhered to the sort of professional circuit all of my life, just put my head down, worked hard, did reasonably well, would laugh at conspiracy theorists. I'd read middle-of-the-road newspapers. I would vote for Party A or Party B. I've never had a public position on anything. I've not campaigned for a politician or a cause or against a cause. Um, and so, and I would until this year have laughed at anyone who came up with something that might be classified as a conspiracy theory. Uh, but I am now, with that as a backdrop, convinced we are in the middle of, as it were, a psychological operation that's affecting a substantial part of the world whose goals are wholly malign. I don't know who the actors are, although we can guess at some of them. And I don't really care what the purpose is. It's extremely bad that, that we are, that we've locked down um, uh, our economies and our civil society for prolonged periods. Uh, and, and there's simply no basis for doing that. And so it's damaged us severely, uh, economically, socially, and psychologically. Um, and yeah, so I do believe, and to your question, has it been planned? Uh, unfortunately, I, I realized uh, over the last three months that multiple par- parties in the world have, have done, as it were, they've wargamed, they've done tabletop simulations of pandemics or chemical or biological warfare. I, I kind of knew that and I'd forgotten it. I remember, uh, I think it was Operation Atlantic Storm, uh, and it was a lot of it on the TV. But and I did, what I didn't realize is that there were a dozen of these things that have run from 1993 to Events 201 in 2019. So basically, there's been sufficient coordination and planning for an event like this, uh, and all you need to do is flip, flip it a little bit and say, well, if you wanted to manufacture this crisis, you'd use exactly the same management techniques as responding to a real external crisis. So bottom line is, I'm afraid I'm drawn, kicking and screaming and reluctantly to, a, to the conclusion it's most likely that it has been planning for a long time, I'm afraid to say. Now, just a year ago, those of us who were warning about the possibility of vaccine passports were called conspiracy theorists. And, you know, now it is something that is being discussed within our government. So we're starting to see that happen. And I also want to touch on lockdowns, the science behind them before we do get to the vaccines. Do you think there was any justification ever to put an entire nation or the entire world on a lockdown? And how damaging are lockdowns to one's health? So so the first question, was there a justification? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And obviously, it's hideously damaging um, because a lot of economic activity stops um, that will ratchet downwards the sort of general wealth of nations. We know that has adverse consequences on health. So straight away, it, it isn't just a free pass. You know, lockdown is neutral. Let's see if we can save people from COVID. Lockdown, of course, is very bad straight away. It's enormously costly uh, at, at every level, socially, scientifically, and so on, medically as well. In terms of the justification, I think it's worth just stating what the justification was, and then I'm going to pull its arms and legs off. So the justification was 
Um, this is a dangerous new, vi new virus. It's a virus that's transmitted between people by human contact. And that, that much is true. And so then they jumped several steps and said, and therefore, if we can reduce the average number of human contacts, we will slow transmission. But they made a mistake there. It isn't just, or it isn't even, the number of human contacts that allows the epidemic to spread. It's very specifically this. It's the number of infectious contacts. That's very different. So everybody will know, and they'd never heard of it before, asymptomatic transmission, the concept that a perfectly well person can represent a respiratory virus threat to another person. That was invented about a year ago. Never been mentioned before so, in history. Let me just stop you right there. This is something, this asymptomatic spread was previously not discussed within the medical field. Is that correct? Yes. When, well, when we go back and ask the question, you can't find loads and loads of papers about this, which is surprising if it's something that happens so commonly. Uh, I think it's, it's been discussed. People were wondering at what stage in the evolution of your disease in response to a virus, at what stage would you become most infected? Uh, would, you, would there ever be a stage where you could be very infectious and not aware and then we've got to this idea of pre-symptomatic or posi-symptomatic, where basically the virus is growing in your body and you are fighting back. Those two things result in symptoms with no question. It's not possible to have a body full of respiratory virus to the point that you're a good infectious source and for you not to have symptoms that others can see as well. That's not possible. And so, uh, yeah, I've lost the train of thinking. Yes, the point is, it's not true that people without symptoms are a strong respiratory virus threat. And so uh, where, where were the, these infectious contacts occurring? They're not in the general community. Why aren't they? Because to be an infectious risk, you need to be full of virus and symptomatic so that you're ejecting virus and virus droplets. Those people already have symptoms. If you've got a bad flu or a bad dose of COVID, not only have you got symptoms, you feel unwell, possibly very unwell, possibly you've taken to your bed, possibly you're in hospital. What you're not going to be doing is living a normal life, going around the community, shopping, going to work. And so my point is this. I don't think ever in the community there were a large number of infectious contact events. And therefore, removing those contacts by locking down the general population you wouldn't expect it to do much to transmission. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that it didn't have much effect to transmission occurring. It's where people are immobilized, symptomatic and ill and in contact with well people. That sounds like a hospital to me or a care home, possibly your own domestic residence. I think, you know, I think mostly hospitals and care homes, a poor second was the domestic occasion. Uh, uh, and I think, in the general community, almost no transmission. And so we, we smashed everything on a false pretense and it didn't do anything to transmission. And now we know why. I want to talk now about the vaccines and in particular the mRNA vaccine. This is the first time in history that we have seen the widespread use of mRNA vaccines. Can you explain the difference between a traditional vaccine and this mRNA vaccine? Yes, I can. Thank you. Yes, the, a traditional vaccine going back as, as right back into the eons of time, hundreds of years ago with Edward Jenner, people like that, they would take uh, either uh, an attenuated version of the infection, something that was weakened, and often it would just be killed. You know, you would basically grow up the bug or grow up the virus, usually viruses. They would kill it, chemically modify it, and then give you a defined dose of it. And your body would recognize some of the fragments of this deceased pathogen and uh, grow both antibody responses and so-called T-cell responses to those so that if you encountered the real life thing, You'd go, I, I recognize this. I've seen this already, and I've got special weapons and techniques, and I can defend my host. But these, these new vaccines are quite different. They don't contain any of the pathogen. What they do is contain code, genetic code, for a part of the pathogen. And so basically, that's messenger RNA, which is something that sits between your, your DNA, your genes, and protein. It's the message that, that actually copies your genes into protein, something you can actually see. And so for the first time ever, widespread use, as you say, messenger RNA-based vaccines, 
And um, I think the goal was that they would inject that into you and it would find its way into some of your cells. Some of those cells would then copy the message almost as if it was your own genes. And you would manufacture that piece of the pathogen and you'd respond to that. It, it struck me at the time as kind of unnecessarily going around the house. Why, why would you take three steps back when you could just give some of the death, dead pathogen? But it is true. They've not been used before. When I was in, when I left Big Pharma 10 years ago, that technology was still experimental and the experimental targets were all severe diseases like cancer. And the reason that was true was that when I'd left 10 years ago, we still hadn't got over two key problems. One was to make enough of this messenger RNA uh, that would be stable so you could inject it or, or absorb it. Um, it's just simply not stable. And why would it be? It's, a, it's meant to be something that's only alive uh, or only exists for a very short period of time as it copies your DNA into a protein and then it winks out of existence. It's, a, it's like a signal, like a radio signal. It comes, you receive it, and it's gone. So it's, it's not meant to be stabilized. Uh, and, and that was one of the problems. When we tried to manufacture it, it would often degrade uh, after you'd made it or as soon as you gave it to a cell or an animal. The other problem was we couldn't get it inside cells. It's not surprising. You normally make it inside a cell. It works inside a cell. And it's the product of mRNA that then goes off into the extracellular surface and does something in your body. So it's not natural for mRNA to arrive externally and to travel inside a cell. And in fact, you have defenses to prevent that very thing. Think why that might be. It's to stop foreign foreign genetics from getting into your cellular machinery. You don't want this to happen. You have extremely uh, uh, well-developed defenses that will cut that up or recognize it as a, as a foreign. And so, um, yeah, so I was extraordinarily surprised when I learned in, in the spring of last year that multiple companies had adopted this technology for the production of vaccines. And I have not felt good about that since that day because I, I just, I think they must be less safe than conventional vaccines. They must be. What are some of the risk factors with the mRNA vaccine and what can it possibly do to the body? Yes, yeah, good question. So uh, I can tell you some of the things we don't know. Uh, I did review the dossiers that had been submitted to medicines regulators and what the innovators, the manufacturers have not done is described where in the body the mRNA, the messenger RNA goes after administration. They, and they also don't, uh, they haven't determined how long the effects of the messenger RNA last. Now, it might strike you as a tremendous surprise. Why have they not been asked to do that? And the answer is because they classified themselves as a vaccine. And vaccines are not required to do this. And the reason they're not is it's normally just a piece of dead pathogen. We don't really care. We know how they work with, with dozens of these things over the decades. So they're not asked to identify where does it go and how long does its effects last. Now, I think they should have been asked to do that. I do accept that they are vaccines, but I think that underclassifies them and misleadingly so. I think they should be called gene-based vaccines because that's what they are. And so what I'm telling you is we don't know where they go. We don't know how long their effects last. And that's why I'm concerned about the potential for side effects. And in particular, all of the spike protein-based, gene-based vaccines, I think they all share, um, I'm not sure, I, I can only assume it was accidental. I think they all share a class risk effect. And that's because all of them are designed to go into your body, go into some cells somewhere, harness the cells, manufacturing machinery, and make a piece of the pathogen, which is the spike. There's things you see on the outside in the cartoons. But spike protein, we understand, is like a docking protein. It allows the virus to bind to a cell receptor on the outside of human cell. But it's not a passive binding protein. It's biologically active. It can prompt cells to stick together. It has so-called fusogenic properties. And it can also initiate blood coagulation. And so now, if you imagine a person receive the, the vaccine, mRNA vaccine, it'll travel around their body and it'll deposit differently in each person. It'll be like a typical pattern. Is this Some why people, people are getting blood clots? 
post-vaccine. I'm, ex- I'm explaining, yes. Yeah. So uh, you would expect a normal bell curve, a distribution of where the va- vaccine goes. And some people, they may get little, very little will be picked up. Loads of people have the middling amount. But there'll be some people on the tail risk, the right-hand side. They might get a lot of the uh, messenger might be picked up in a place where they're vulnerable, maybe in a blood vessel in their brain uh, or in some branch point in their blood vessel. And now imagine you happen to be one of the unlucky people that took up a lot of that virus, the, 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 the messenger RNA, and then yet again manufactured lots of spike protein in that spot because it will be a normal distribution in every person. So if you're the outlier of the outlier, the one in a few thousand, you could end up producing a lot of spike protein in just the wrong pace in your body. And if you happen to be susceptible to formation of a blood clot, given what I just told you about properties of spike protein, I would predict this is what you'd expect. Uh, and sure enough, they found in Europe, um, I think several dozen cases of healthy, fit women, quite young, 20 to 50, who have died of cerebral vein sinus thrombosis. And uh, even the regulator has now said, we believe it is causatively associated. And, you know, all of these gene-based vaccines, I think they all have this kind of tail risk effect because unlike a conventional vaccine where you get a defined dose and that's what you get, with the ones that encode something, you've got multiple properties. One is how does it distribute? How is it taken up? How efficiently is it copied? I just think that automatically widens the envelope of of the biological responses. And and if you happen to be one of the people on the far right-hand side, it gets a you know a blood clot. It could kill you, and so that's that's where I think we've got to. And as a toxicologist, that was my first training. I would expect that to be a class effect. I, I wouldn't know whether it was worse or better with one messenger uh, uh, mRNA vaccine than another. But I would say they should qualitatively have similar effects. And so it's not enough to say, well, don't use the AstraZeneca one, because of blood clots, use something else. I think if they all produce spike protein, I would think if you look properly, instead of looking the other way, you'll see a similar spectrum of unwanted effects. So you mentioned some unlucky people. Do you think that these potential risks are clinically significant? Yes, I I do. Uh, And I think that because I'm afraid we have had some deaths uh, through thromboembolic events, that's blood clots and bleeding, that uh, have occurred in people where the background rate of that finding is very low. And that's really why it's come out. So if you're a healthy young woman, you don't have any special risks for, for blood clots, uh, let alone you know, in particularly vulnerable spots in your brain, and you arrive in hospital, blinding headaches, and they take a history and they do some diagnostics and they say, this person has cerebral vein, sinus thrombosis, uh, I think something like 50% of people who turn up who get that diagnosis die. It's I mean, a really serious thing. Blood flow and outflow from your brain is being occluded by a, a developing clot. Uh, it turns out that people of that age and disposition very rarely suffered from this uh, complication. So when they saw seven cases, one after the other in a short period of time, and the common factor was they'd recently had one of these vaccines, it didn't take them long to think this could be it. And then another country had a similar cluster in the same kind of patient. But I don't think it's only in those patients that blood clots are formed. It's really important that I communicate this. It's that they were unable to avoid it. They couldn't look the other way because sinus vein, uh, cerebral vein sinus thrombosis is so unusual that to get seven cases, I think it was seven fatalities quite close together, it's not a background finding. But what about people who are a little older and a little sick? Well, yeah, blood clots are not uncommon, as they keep telling us. Well, you know, even if you had double the rate, if you weren't looking hard, you probably wouldn't notice. It doesn't mean it's not there. In fact, I'm convinced there's a, there are blood clot risks probably in all cohorts, both genders. And we, but is this one we've noticed because they couldn't look the other way because the background rate was so low when they saw the cluster, had to ascribe it to the drug. This is so incredible. I do want to ask you about the stage that we are in with this vaccine rollout. Are we still in the experimental stage? Yes, definitely. I'm surprised 
I'm half surprised that you're asking me that because, of course, you and I know that these are, um, they have received what's called experimental use authorization, uh, certainly in Europe and the US, probably other places too. What does that mean? It means the authorities have decided that there is a sufficiently a sufficient crisis going on and that there are no alternative medical uh, or pharmacological treatments. And so this is something, and so we'll let you use this because it's an emergency. Well, I think it's questionable, really, whether we're still in an emergency. Um, and if, if we're not still in an emergency, don't you think it's time to lift the authorization? Because uh, being emergency authorized, they are still in their what's called pivotal phase three trials. People probably know that drugs go through phase one, health two volunteers, phase two, working out does it work and at what dose in patients. Phase three is a big long-term safety and efficacy trial. It usually takes years, and in this case, about two more years to go. So we're still two years from the goal line where we would normally even tentatively allow these to be rolled out in general population. Two years. Um, and what's happened in that time um, is there are alternative medical and pharmacological treatments. So people have heard of hydroxychloroquinone or uh, corticosteroids like uh, uh, uresinide. They've heard of ivermectin, an off-patent antiparasitic. All three of these have been shown in really good quality trials of at least the same power as, as the vaccine trials uh, and have produced similar or better uh, uh, outcomes. So why are regulators around the world just averting their eyes and refusing to look at these other small molecule treatments. And the answer is, if they do that, then the emergency use authorization for the vaccines uh, terminates. And so, when you know, I've been very frustrated as, as a drug discoverer to, to, to learn that there are at least three or four alternative treatments that I would definitely want for myself and my relatives if I had COVID-19. And uh, the regulators have, have either banned them, they've actively said these are not suitable, or they've just sort of gone deaf and dumb. They will not listen to a proposition. Um, and so where are we now with the rollout? I think we're beyond reckless. Um, even if you put the most positive spin on the clinical profile of these experimental vaccines, uh, I think they should have been made available uh, offered to the people who are at clearly elevated risk of dying if they're infected with COVID-19. And I don't think we should have given them to anyone else. If you're, say, I'm my age, 60, I have no existing medical conditions, uh, there are hardly anybody, hardly anyone, a male, 60, no prior conditions, hardly anyone in Britain died even with COVID in the last uh, 16 months or so. Fewer people died of COVID uh, so, sorry, with COVID in my country, with a description like mine, then died falling off motorcycles, which is one of my hobbies. So I just thought I'd mention that just to give you a, a flavour for the risk. And yet we're vaccinating the entire population of the United Kingdom, uh, including people much younger than me, whose risks are much lower. And yet all of them are carrying uh, the toxicity risks, whether known or not known. So it was always an inappropriate thing to have done. Um, and I'm more and more troubled as time goes on. I uh, marketing materials, persuasion campaigns to try and persuade pregnant women in their 20s to get vaccinated. Uh, I mean, why in the, what kind of unethical monster does that? And uh, there are also pediatric trials going on, studies in children uh, for a disease they never get. You know, in the UK, for example, not a single child who was fit and well acquired this virus and died, not one. And we have 10 million children under the age of 10. And later in the year, they are taped according to the government's plans to be vaccinated. How can that possibly make any sense? There's no clinical benefit if they're not susceptible to, to getting ill with the virus, no clinical benefit. How will you then offset the known risks? There'll always be known risks, and then there'll be things we don't understand yet. That is the we're only two years from the goal line. Um, but, and that's partly why I'm doing these interviews. I, I believe we are, we're beyond reckless in offering these vaccines, pushing these vaccines to people who are not at elevated risk from, for, from dying from the virus. I, I just don't understand any ethical reason why I'd want to do this. And that's what's finally led me kicking and screaming to the view that 
If there isn't a benign reason why it's being done, there must be a malign reason. And I think that malign reason, which would explain why everybody's to be vaccinated, is we're going to force you guys, everybody, men, men women and children, and eventually babies, onto a unique world's first vaccine passport-based ID system. And if people don't resist this, I think it's the end of liberal democracy everywhere. Just to be absolutely clear, I've spent 32 years of my professional life uh, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I'm just hugely privileged. Uh, I would say pharmaceutical R&Ds, a friend once described it as the last truly important organised game for adults, trying to find what's gone wrong in human disease, how can we intervene to help the patient and to do so with the fewest amount of side effects. That's the mission. So I'm massively in favour of new and, ex and exciting therapeutics, whether they're you know, creams or tablets, lotion sprays or vaccines. What I'm, what I'm pro then is I'm pro safe medicines and I'm very much against things that I think are risky and I'm very much against things when they're used in, in the wrong context. So you should give a strong medicine to someone who's got most to gain from it and not give it to people who are not. So with that as a backdrop, my wife's similar description, you know, same age, no prior conditions. We've checked almost no one of that description has died even with COVID. My children are in their 20s, fit and well, no prior conditions. Why in the world would I do anything other than say, you don't have a risk to reduce. You're not at risk from this virus. Why would you want to spend any time and effort in taking a risk to reduce this risk? So I would say, because of that, don't, don't do it. But... Um, my parents are dead, but if they, if they were around, they would have been in their mid-80s. And uh, if, if they were otherwise reasonably well, I might say, you know, it, it might be worth you considering taking it. There are some risks, but most people aren't killed by the, by the vaccine. And I do believe you'd have a measure of protection. So let's talk about it. So I'm not anti-vax. I'm not even anti-against. I'm not anti-against all these vax vaxes in the right context. What I'm absolutely solidly against is the way they're being pushed into young and fit people not at risk from the virus, uh, and therefore they are bearing uh, the adverse consequences, small or large, and that's that's never been never been supported before in a, in a civilized society. It's the sort of thing, you know, of nightmarish sort of bad behaviour occasionally that one hears of by 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 businesses, and I just don't want any part of this. Dr. Dolores Cahill of University College Dublin has predicted that within three to five years of receiving the vaccine, this mRNA vaccine, that people will unfortunately die as a result of receiving this vaccine. And we know as well that the more harm from these mRNA vaccines will happen in the years to come. So my, you know, what I've been saying all along is anyone who's over 70 who gets one of these mRNA vaccines will probably be sadly die within about two to three years and i would say anyone who gets the mrna injection no matter what age you are your life expectancy will be reduced to you know die if you're in your 30s within five to ten years do you agree with that assessment uh, I, I wouldn't say i agree or disagree i, I you know i respect yours hugely comment though that um we actually don't know what will happen Right. This experiment has not yet been run to conclusion. So I know she's giving her honest opinion uh, and I would say she could be right. But I believe we don't know enough to say we, we, that that will definitely happen. She's not wrong to point out that um, diseases like this, including SARS itself, and, and I think dengue fever as well. There have been peculiar situations where people with antibodies to to this pathogen have sometimes uh, experienced a phenomenon called antibody-dependent worse disease. Antibody-dependent enhancement, it's called. Enhancement is not good in this case. Uh, so I think that may be where Dolores is coming from. And I think what she might be doing is joining the dots from prior bad experiences and saying uh, that I, I think it's a serious risk that this could happen. And I, I think I would, I would go as far as that and say there's a serious risk that might happen. My, my, my bigger concern, though, if we can go on, can we get, should we get to variants? Because that's, that, that's where Mike Eden's greatest concern is that others might disagree with me. So, so I, I've given a reply to Dolores' concern, uh, and I would like at some point to get onto mine. It literally keeps me awake at night. Yes, of course, please do. I, I think I mentioned earlier that the variants are, uh, some people call them scariants, 
that they're being used uh, as a sort of psychological operation. And I think there's something in that. Uh, and I sarcastically call them the Samians because they're really the same. They're so same. All the variants are so similar to the original. There's no chance whatsoever that your body will see them as anything new. So with that as a backdrop, isn't it scary that politicians keep telling us about variants uh, and how we need to close the borders and stop them moving around the world? Uh, and don't worry, the pharmaceutical industry will make um, modified vaccines that will address the, these new these new variants. And then I've heard recently some of the pharmaceutical companies are actually manufacturing top-up or variant vaccines. But the, if Mike Eden's correct, and I'm confident I am, this is my strength, um, immunology. And I, what I've just told you is absolutely true. They're so similar to the original. Whereas it's not just implausible, it's impossible you would need new vaccine to accommodate them. And yet you're being told they're necessary. You're being told they're being manufactured. I'm quite frightened because I've got this open question. What the hell is in those bottles of variant vaccine? And then, uh, as I say, the world's regulators have said they're so similar to the vaccines that are already being used, by the way, forgetting to tell us or remind us that they are only emergency use authorised anyway. But the regulators have said we don't need any clinical safety testing done on these on these variants. So if you combine my horror about vaccine passports and how you would be compelled to do or not do, whatever the algorithm tells you, if you combine that with an opportunity to be told, uh, go and get your variant vaccine, and the pharmaceutical industry can make whatever the hell they want, put it in a vial, and you'll go along and be injected with it. Uh, my, my significant fear is if somebody wanted to Someone wanted to arrange a situation where mass depopulation could be accompanied, could be accomplished. This would probably be a perfect way of doing it. All we need to do is add some soupçon of fear periodically. Maybe a new virus arises uh, and the media is full of fear porn and vaccine. You would go down. You would get it. You wouldn't suspect anything if you've not been thinking. Uh, but if three months, six months, a year later, whatever it is, it's in those uh, messenger RNA or cDNA uh, top-up vaccines brings about whatever the design effect is. Maybe it'll make you ill, maybe it'll kill you. Uh, plausible deniability, um, a long-running human fight against uh, you know, horrible pathogens, and sadly all these people died. You almost, that's what I think the plausible deniability scares from, from media, suppression of people like me and alternative viewpoints, uh, clearly manufacture of what I think of fraudulently, fraudulent and not needed products, and then a vaccine passport to prompt you, require to go and get them. I, it's, just a, it's literally a nightmare, isn't it? But it's happening. What I've just described is pretty much government policy. So it's not my crime. If I'm wrong, and anyone who's listening says, I've spotted where Dr. Eden's gone wrong, please, for God's sake, you know, write to Taylor and tell her, because I'll sleep better. But I've asked, I've, I've asked this challenge in writing, on podcasts, and in face-to-face -face interviews. Not one person has come back with one suggestion as for the benign interpretation of what is happening. It's very scary. Absolutely. Dr. Eden, it has become very clear that we are headed down a very dangerous path to be possibly existing in a biosecurity state. What can people do to stop this from happening? Yes, uh, it's a great question, and it's really why I'm, why I'm here. I would say if you are not at elevated risk of dying if infected, please do not have the vaccine. I'm not anti-vax, I'm pro-safe medicines. Don't take it because you don't have an elevated risk that needs reducing. It would be like giving a 20-year-old a, a flu vaccine. They probably wouldn't come, would they? Because they would say... I'm not at risk. Why are you offering me this damn vaccine? Uh, but I can tell you, if you're 20, your, your risk of dying from influenza is very low, but it's higher than the chance of you dying of COVID-19. It is. Dr. John I and Ivy's calculations show this. If you're under 70 or 60, uh, you're at greater risk of dying from influenza than COVID-19. So if you didn't seek an influenza vaccine last season, why in the world would you want a COVID-19 vaccine? You're at less risk from that. So, so, that's, so there's two things. One is if you're not at risk from the virus, serious risk, you know, elderly and or already ill, 
don't take the vaccine. Because if you if you simply choose not to, if enough of you and your peers uh, and family and friends and workmates don't take it, they can't start the vaccine passport system, right? You may have a good chance in, in North America because I think you're way behind on percentage vaccination. We're already lost in the UK. We're, we're in the mid-60s percent now, I think, of adults. Uh, that might even be pretty much more than anyone else. It's the most vaccinated sort of first world country. And I, we will get, we're going to be the first that goes under. And I will be leaving the country because it's not going to be, it's going to be dark. So first would be, you know, don't be blandish. Don't be persuaded to take this damn, these damn vaccines. If you are not at risk from the disease, why in the world would you take the vaccine, even if they were completely safe and they're not? Um, then the next thing is campaign like hell against vaccine passports. Look, if you're a vulnerable person and you've been offered the vaccine and accepted it and you've had a good experience, you're now immune. You are protected. You don't need to know the immune status of anyone by your side at a football game or in the queue at a supermarket or, or, or in your workplace or, or even maybe in a restaurant. You don't need to know it. You're already protected, just like you would have been if you'd had the flu jab. You didn't ask anyone else for their, excuse me, tell me your immune status as regards influenza this year. If you're vulnerable and you've been vaccinated, you're protected. You don't need the faux protection of a vaccine passport. If you're young and fit, you're not vulnerable anyway. And again, you don't need to know the immune status of anyone near you. Guess who it is that does want the vaccine passport? It's the people persuading you to have it. It's the people who want to control us. You don't need it. You don't benefit from it. It'll just make your life constrained beyond measure. So campaign against it. Don't get vaccinated unless you are highly vulnerable to the virus. And keep moving to countries that are vaccinating slowly. That's my plan. I have to leave. I'm not going to be vaccinated. And I don't think that's going to be tolerated for much longer. This has been very insightful and eye-opening. Dr. Michael Eden, thank you. Thank you for letting this message get out to more people. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank you all for watching today. Make sure you share this video with your friends and your family. As you all know, this is a very suppressed topic in the mainstream news. But if you feel compelled to act after everything that you just heard and want to prevent a possible medical tyranny and dystopian vaccination passport, I highly suggest that you also visit doctorsforcovidethics.medium.com. You could also follow this organization on Twitter at doctors, the number four COVID ethics. This particular organization is comprised of doctors and scientists from around the world who are upholding medical ethics and human rights in response to COVID-19. But lastly, I want to thank you all once again. Make sure that you give this video a thumbs up and don't forget to subscribe to The Last American Vagabond. I'm independent journalist Taylor Hudak and I'll see you all next time.